anybody who seeks mental health service, you must be, quote, crazy. You must be sure. insane. There's right. something, quote, wrong with you. And it's like, yeah. or <laughs> it's your body right. <laughs> and <Yeah>. our brains. <laughs> we should probably be making sure that just as we work out sure. to tend to our muscles, we should be working out our mental space as well. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're in Oklahoma City to interview three city councilors about the historic MAPS 4 vote. What's MAPS 4? Well, the one cent sales tax that passed will be used to fund 16 civic projects estimated to cost nearly $978 million. This includes $50 million for affordable housing. $40 million will provide new mental health and substance use services designed to relieve pressure on the Oklahoma County Jail. And $17 million will be used for a diversion hub to also relieve pressure on the jail. And that hub will work with low-level offenders to provide a diversion away from incarceration. Now to introduce our guests, James Cooper of Ward 2, formerly served as an Oklahoma City public schools teacher and is a published writer. An avid middle school college preparation teacher, James also works as an adjunct film studies professor at Oklahoma City University, where he serves on OCU's Arts and Sciences Advisory Board. Next up is Joe Beth Hammond, who serves Oklahoma City's Ward 6. Many of you also probably know Joe Beth as the amazing education coordinator for Mental Health Association. Joe Beth plays an integral role in organizing our annual Zero Mental Health Symposium, which is coming up October 1st and 2nd, 2020 in Tulsa. You can learn more about the symposium at zerosymposium.org. And finally, Nikki Nice serves Ward 7. She's the 10th woman and the second woman of color to serve on the council since the city's incorporation in 1890. She's a well-known television and radio personality with nearly 15 years of on-air experience in the OKC market. Okay, just a quick note that this is part one of a two-part series featuring these amazing counselors. Part two finds them talking in depth about the theme of this year's Zero Mental Health Symposium. And their jumping off point is the HBO series Watchmen. And that series prominently features the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. So let's get started. The Mental Health Download starts now. So what I want to do real quick, just so people can get more context on each of you, of why you ran for city council. And if you can uh, relate that to, you know, the pillars of our organization are promoting mental health, preventing suicide, ending homelessness, and reforming the criminal justice system. I'm going to let Joe Beth go first. Well, so it's funny because those are like literally my platform points <laughs> from my campaign. Um, yeah, I don't own a car. So part of why I started paying attention to city government was because I just was walking and biking and riding our bus system, which at the time did not run on Sundays when I first moved here. It only would run once an hour on Saturday or yeah, once an hour on Saturdays and didn't run at night at the time. So, and th- so I was kind of like, well, that's a bummer. And then um, when I would get off the bus in certain places, I would, there would be a sidewalk. And so I just kind of started thinking to myself, like, who's in charge of this? So started advocating to my city council member at the time, but also just trying to connect with other people in the community who are interested in those sorts of things. And then as well as my work with mental health and um, just uh, working in an organization that addresses homelessness and um, utilizes Housing First, I just kept seeing from kind of our 
leaders in government at all levels, but even seeing at the city council level, just kind of the lack of education, I would say, to put it nicely, um, of some of our other our former um, councils kind of collectively just felt like they didn't really, when I would listen to them talk about issues affecting working people, issues affecting people um, experiencing mental illness or homelessness, just a lot of bad information. And so it kind of occurred to me that well, maybe we need more people who have that, you know, that language and that understanding sitting in those seats. So, you know, I think I was actually talking to a group a few weeks ago and when I was knocking doors, people would kind of ask like, wait, so you work in a mental health organization. Shouldn't you be running for like a state level seat? Cause that's, you know, the city doesn't really do anything related to mental health. And, and I actually have a, I think that's like completely wrong because so much of our built environment does contribute to our overall health. And so, you know, not having an option, whether to bike or walk or, take the bus or not having access to parks, um, all those sorts of things do affect our health. And um, and then the fact that the city does oversee our police department, our municipal courts, there's so much around city services that do interact with people in crisis. So a little bit of it was helping educate people about how, the breadth of what the city does, but also trying to connect, I think, just how our day-to-day lives are affected by or, or affect our mental health outside of just treatment and counseling and those sorts of things. So that's a lot of why I ran. Nikki? Well, that's a a really (laughs) round question. (laughs) Uh, Why did I run for office? Well, I will say, as pertaining to mental health, uh, I have been on the board for Heartline 201 for past maybe almost, almost six years, so I'm almost out. I'm almost out of there <laughs> when I think about that. But I did that by the way of United Way Board Serve uh, through them, and I was appointed uh, to Heartline. But during the process of me running for office, I was an on-air personality for radio, and I also did TV. So I was on Fox 25 and also uh, did a morning talk show in the mornings. And just the, the conversations from, from our community about what's happening when it came to potholes and streets and then when it came to bigger situations on national level and state scales a lot of our community uh, we were empowered but a lot of us didn't realize who actually cared for some of those things uh, as far as our requests and our concerns so i learned that process through this process of being on the radio and just meeting our elected officials and what that looks like and when it came time for me to run, uh, unfortunately, our previous councilman abruptly resigned, and I literally had 15 days to decide if I was going to run. And uh, I decided the last day, I think I was the last person that, <laughs> that signed my name. And uh, little did I know, seven other people said they wanted to serve too. <laughs> so either way, I uh, made it through. And I'll say for reference purposes, uh, Ward 7, the seat that I serve has been the only African-American seat held since 1966. So um, there was a concern uh, due to our runoff that I had a a middle-aged Caucasian man that there was a possibility we would not have that representation any longer at the table. So that was a great concern for a lot of us sure. in the community. And uh, obviously that was very concerning for me because I was like, Lord, why would you do me like this? <laughs> like, I didn't even want to run. 
was like, I just want, I knew we needed representation. That's why I wanted to do this. But please, I don't want to lose. <laughs> but well, either way. I will, I will mention she won with like a resounding <laughs> mandate. I think, what, 70? 71.8%. There you go. <laughs> 16,907 16, votes. There you go. Thank you. All right. So that's that's why I ran, obviously, uh, speaking. Uh, truth to power when it comes to our, our justice system sure. uh, for our predominantly African-American communities that are served, uh, what that looks like when we can better police uh, when it comes to community policing. That's a grave concern. Um, and in making sure we're turning our, our community as far as just that transparency piece of what government looks like. Let's tell the story and help them to be empowered of what their power is and what in my position I can do to assist them in that effort. Wow. That's beautiful. You guys are amazing. All right, James, you got to top that. <laughs> I can't. I didn't I go to journalism no school. <laughs> I didn't. Um, He'll tell you a long story. <laughs> well, and it's going to. It's a good story, though. It, it's, it it's, it's one that, uh, unfortunately, both council people have heard a bit, but I have an addendum to it. Whoa. <laughs> So, you know, Columbine happened my senior year of high school that April, or my junior year of high school. I was out at Choctaw Nakama Park Schools. I grew up in the rural suburbs of, of Midwest City. And um, when it happened, the it didn't matter if you were Hillary Clinton or if you were John McCain in terms of political parties, you had the culprit. The culprit was Marilyn Manson, the shock rocker. The culprit was the video game Doom. Mm -hmm. The culprit was Biggie and Tupac. The culprit was the Matrix that had just come out sure. the month previously. And, and it wasn't just the two political parties. It was all the media commentary, all of it. Mm. And um, this, if, I always cite that. I even have a book on my desk where one of my uh, new constituents uh, <laughs> purchased for me about Columbine. And I will always leave it there um, because it really set me on this path. I never thought running for office would be it. I thought what it would be is I would write an academic book on media violence, that there would be a chapter on video game violence, a chapter on um, horror films, a chapter on uh, television violence. Because I'd grown up on all that. Like, I'd grown up on Mortal Kombat. I, the first film I remember seeing next to Ferris Bueller's Day Off is <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. I was five. <laughs> wow. Okay. And immediately Dang. wanted to be a writer. Like, I, that was just immediately what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to write scary stories. And yet, all those years from age five till Columbine, I would hear from principals, teachers, my friends, neighbors, that the very fact that I was watching these scary stories, the very fact that I was playing these video games, the very fact that I was listening to Biggie and Tupac and uh, Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana meant that I was destined for violence, mm -hmm. destined for it. And, the, and they would use words like evil. And, and in fact, they were very often would not let their, their, um, their kids hang out with me. So I set about in uh, undergrad and grad school researching media violence. Like that was that was exactly my plan. And the goal at the end was to do an academic book. When it was all said and done, I realized that if I was lucky, only other academics would read that book. <laughs> <laughs> and the if I was lucky part was like if NPR was like, you know, this is a good book. Y'all should read this. Sure. 
And, you know, and then now the part that they've heard a million times here, you know, we had the teacher walk out a couple right. of years ago. Right. And I remember literally walking from my front door to the state capitol, my front door being the Paseo. And all of that, just literally 18 years worth of research was just flooding through my head. I was by myself on that walk. And, you know, what I had learned most recently was from a on the media podcast uh, about poverty. And one of the things they said was, you know, for every year that a kid spends in a better environment, teen pregnancy goes down, college chances go up, they earn more over their lifetime, they have more stable family environments. And the kiddos who don't grow up in those um, better environments, it's going to be associated with crime, income inequality, segregation. Um, and I just, I, I just, I'd had enough. I'd really had enough because we'd go to the Capitol. People would give you, here's water, here's cookies. I support public education. Thank you so much, they would say. And But they would not budge on you know funding for more counselors that we knew we needed in our schools. Uh, our adverse childhood experience scores in Oklahoma City Public Schools, where I was a middle school teacher, are off the charts, not in a healthy place. And um, I, I mean, similar in that way to what, Joe Beth is saying, like, there was just this moment where I was just like, I know we don't talk about these things at the city level, mm -hmm. but it's time we start talking about the environment mm -hmm. and uh, the, the built environment and create that better environment. We, this was Stanford economic research that was floating around in my head. I was like, well, I don't know. Those guys seem pretty smart. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I kind of come at this from a different, you know, track, but it really was, you know, a, an academic one of, of wanting to understand the root causes of media violence on our brains. Mm -hmm. And instead, I ended up learning about adverse childhood experiences <laughs> and those sorts of things and um, decided to see what I could do to create some better environments. Okay. Well, now that we know where you all came from, you, this, uh, in 2019, you collectively spent about 24 hours listening to MAPS 4 presentations, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it was more than that, wasn't it? Like 30 <laughs> something? I don't know. I don't even want to think about that it. That was a lot of holding it in. <laughs> going to the it was 26, because it would have been eight, two times, maybe nine almost, and then five a couple yeah. times, so at yeah. least 26 yeah. or 30. A yes. lot of cherry Pepsis, a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of candy, a lot of cheese. Um, and so all of these things that you came with from your personal side saying, I want to make a difference as a city councilor, a lot of those things that we've just talked about are going to hopefully, we're going to make great change possible through the MAPS4 uh, funding. So before we get into what your vision is for MAPS4, what you hope it accomplishes, uh, what those gaps and surfaces are right now, I want Joe Beth for the audience that has, a, we have a large Tulsa population yeah. that lives to that listens to the podcast. And so they may not, this may be the first time they're hearing about MAPS-4. Yeah. So if you can kind of uh, explain MAPS-4. Yeah. So, um, and just to start, so pe yeah, people who might not be familiar with MAPS at all. So MAPS was a program that was started in the early 90s um, as a response to the sort of apocryphal story that people always tell is that um, American Airlines was thinking about moving to Oklahoma City. I think we were in like the top two, top three as finalists, and we were going to shell out subsidies and all this economic development money and they still didn't pick us. And when I guess I, the, again, it's sort of this like legend of like King Arthur's court or something, but, um, the mayor at the time went to the CEO and said, well, why didn't you pick us? Well, I mean, we, 
looked at what the other people were going to give you and we were going to give you so much more. And, um, and the quote always is, well, we just couldn't imagine making our employees living in Oklahoma city. And so the mayor at the time really, really, and we were coming off this horrible economic recession with some, you know, in the eighties, there was, um, you know, Penn square bank failed, oil was really bad, all that sort of thing. So we were just in a real economic depression kind of microcosm of Oklahoma and Oklahoma city. And, um, so the mayor said, well, why don't we, instead of, you know, giving all this money to a corporation, what if we actually invested that money in the quality of life opportunities for our residents? And so, um, I think they built the Bricktown ballpark. They built a canal. A lot of it was still sort of entertainment related. Um, but they also redid our downtown library. There were just some things that trying to kind of revive some, um, opportunities that would make Oklahoma City a more enjoyable place to live for people. And so it's gone over some some different iterations over the years. It's um, but it, the core of it is that it's a penny sales tax that goes towards infrastructure projects. So in this iteration with uh, MAPS 4, we went through, a, well, as we alluded to, a long <laughs> uh, process of public meetings um, with a set number of presentations that kind of had filtered their way to the top and put together a resolution that essentially the voters voted on a one cent tax that would last eight years. And the council has resolved that this is what we're spending it on. And so, you know, we uh, allocated $50 million for affordable housing, $30 million or $40 million would be for rehabbing public housing. $10 million would be to build new units. Um, public transit is in there. A lot of sidewalks, a lot of bike lanes. Um, there are some more of those kind of what I think people see as kind of the flashy economic development, entertainment type of projects like a soccer stadium, um, redoing our state fair arena, stadium, and a few of those other items. Um, but really the majority of it is for those kind of what I would see as kind of the true quality of life. I think especially what to James was speaking of creating that better environment in our neighborhoods and for people who just haven't really felt the, um, maybe they're not accessing, you know, the ballpark or the Chesapeake arena or those sorts of things. So it is more in my mind, a kind of holistic maps. Uh, there's a big chunk of it going to improve our parks, but again, it's all infrastructure. And so I think you also alluded to that there will be some partnering in the community to make sure that the, ongoing operations for that the services are actually, you know, we can, we'll build the building, but we need to find people who can operate the services. Mm -hmm. And the mental health side. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. That was a whole one is the, yes. Creating a mental health restoration center. That would be an opportunity for diversion before people are getting into the criminal legal system. And then on the other side of that, the Arnold foundation had proposed a diversion hub, which would catch people kind of on the other end who had already gotten involved, but, um, you know, in my mind, there it's not envisioned specifically as maybe mental health or substance abuse is an issue, but it's probably not the main reason those folks will, because they're they're gonna. I think that'll be a little bit of it, but in my mind, I would hope that that restoration center would catch people before they even got to the diversion hub at the on the other side of jail. All right, she's very good. Mm -hmm. That's that, that's a lot. That, was that? Uh, there's like five uh, other projects I probably I didn't mention because there's so many. I'm sure you each had to explain this to all your constituents and, 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 and your family and friends. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's it's a lot to take right. in. Still explaining, still explaining, yeah, still explaining it. Explaining yeah. it yeah. So Nikki, what I want you to do is, um, and we can do this as many times as we need to, but I want you to pick one gap in service that you see in our community, in the Oklahoma City community right now, and how MAPS 4 is gonna close that mm -hmm. gap or work to help close that gap. And it can be anything you want. 
Well, um, I'll, I'll reference this and say uh, being born and raised in the era of maps, mm-hmm. it's pretty stellar to be a part of shaping maps for the next generation uh, as I've been able to benefit. But I think to this capacity, we've never had projects de- dedicated to certain communities, um, especially for the communities that I serve in Northeast Oklahoma City. So I think those are, I would say that that's to me, that's where the gap has been all along, um, that we haven't been able to spread the wealth of what maps can bring to other parts of our city. And uh, when I look at what is about to take place for our communities, especially um, our uh, underserved communities that are within Northeast Oklahoma City, which in reference uh, to our Tulsa folks is it's like North Tulsa. Mm-hmm. So shout out to uh, Councilwoman <laughs> Vanessa Hall Harper. Uh, she's my shero. <laughs> uh, but you, know, you look at uh, how you have to collectively work towards bettering certain parts of your community when other parts are just thriving along. Mm-hmm. This, to me, helps to bring it to where it, it should be. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not going to fully even it, but it's going to bring it from where it was. And when we think about the Freedom Center, when we think about 23rd Street Enhancements, when we think about uh, the two of their ideas of bringing the bus rapid transit for Northeast 23rd Street, you know, those, I, I didn't, this is something they've had to teach me when it comes to public transportation and what that looks like, because I, I've grown up, I've always had a car, you know, so I don't know what that world is, but thankfully I've, I've been able to connect with people who see other things outside of my view. Um, and also I see things outside of their view. So we're able to bring those thoughts mm-hmm. together. And I think in my opinion, that's how we were able to fill those gaps of um, services and needs mm-hmm. that that hadn't been seen for our communities before. So uh, those are the things I'm definitely looking forward to, better economic impact for our communities uh, because our community is suffering right now. Um, and even with the, the mental health aspect of our communities, I know a lot of people don't realize um, that suicide is very prevalent and high in numbers for our African-American teens mm-hmm. um, and those young adult age teens. And it's such a taboo topic in our community. We don't talk about suicide. We don't talk about suicide prevention. Um, we just silence it and say, you're going to be okay or just pray about it uh, when we have to do more. And, and, those are things that I also take into account when we're approaching just that health outcome, healthier ways to look at our communities as well, what that looks like. So I know I'm all over the place with no, that's thoughts, beautiful. but that's, no, that's, that's really just to me, just being able to have a service and a need with maps, any project really fills the gaps for the mm-hmm. people that I serve in my community. Yeah. Wow. So the, the new thing, I don't, I feel like I've mentioned the Columbine thing, but the new thing was I watched, and some of your listeners might be familiar, it's a documentary, it's third of the series, it's called Paradise Lost, and it was about these uh, three young men in um, Arkansas, uh, West Memphis, Arkansas, who were arrested in the early 90s for the murder of these three young boys, and they were arrested for no other reason than they were wearing black and surely they must be devil worshipers mm-hmm. and they were listening to rock music. And I rewatched that. Well, I watched the third of the films. So it's an HBO documentary. And I watched it a couple weeks ago because my best friend Randy said it was one of the best films of the decade. And I was like, well, I haven't seen the third one. And I watched it. 
And it just reminded me why I got involved in the first place. Like there are people who do not take seriously mental health and substance abuse. They instead scapegoat, you know, oh, well, those kids listen to rap or rock. So that must be the problem. And and they call kids discipline problems. And I don't see kids like that. I see every kid with a backstory. Uh, Maybe it's just my love of stories, but I see every kid has exposition and there's a reason why they're there. So for me, the two biggest projects and maps were that excite me. And there are a lot, like everything that Nikki and Joe Beth just said, those all those projects have my heart. I'm really excited about our youth centers. I'm hopeful rather. I mean, I don't know. We don't know. It's all, so you feel like you're in this liminal space between the beginning of collecting the sales tax and then the implementation of building these projects. But, you know, youth centers, I'm, I'm hopeful that the city can like send me to go see some of the more successful ones around the country. But our kids need to have a place where they can go after school. Um, you know, the middle school rise for teaching, they get out at four. And if their parents, you know, my kids in, the, in Oklahoma City Public Schools, they are um, 90% of them qualify for free or reduced lunch, which then the district just said, all of you can sure. go ahead and do it. If, if we're here, we're here, you know. Sure. Um, so these are kids whose parents are very likely to be working after school, both parents, multiple jobs. And so, you know, as a college preparation teacher at the time, you know, I was there trying to help students understand organization and group work skills and critical thinking and reading and writing. But then they don't have that support system when they get home. Yeah. Not because mom and dad are, you know, lazy layabouts, but because they are doing everything they can to make sure that there's food on the table, you know. And so very often my kids were going home and taking care of little brother, little sister or cousin. And so homework just gets completely sure you know, at the bottom of that barrel. Um, it's not just after school, but it's weekends. It's not mm-hmm. just weekends, but it's the uh, several weeks they have off at Christmas break. It's the several weeks that they have off, excuse me, at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It's the summer's break. Right. It's the couple weeks they get for spring break. Um, you know, there was a white supremacist who was on NPR who said that he got caught up in all that ridiculousness mm-hmm because he came from a broken family mm-hmm. and the uh, music that he was listening to that was espousing these sort of uh, far-right um, fascist neo-Nazi ideas, he was listening to that and then before long these people become like a surrogate family. Mm-hmm. And you see a similar thing but from a different perspective with these kids in our schools who end up with these gangs because they're surrogate families and maybe uncle or aunt or dad or grandpa were in the gang. And so that seems like the way out. And that seems like the way to put some food on the table. It's survival mode. And I just think those youth centers, I'm not saying they're like the cure-all, but you better start someplace. So if we can provide that support system, and there's four of them that we've said brand new, we wanted to fund in MAPS 4. I didn't like that. I thought after talking to Boys and Girls Club, uh, and listening to them, they were convinced that you could, for far less than the twenty million for each of those youth centers that are new, you could for one to three million rehab a building, mm-hmm. um, and be 
just as effective. And so for me, I think having those youth centers, having them targeted in high crime parts of town that have been too often left behind, marginalized, underrepresented, I think that's going to be key. Mm-hmm. And then the mental health component, and I'm really interested in going to the um, youth center. I think it's in San Francisco where they started doing some of the ACE education mm-hmm. work there. But I think in those youth centers, we've got to have mental health providers as well who are focused on ACE education for both the kiddos who are coming there and for their parents. And I think we've also got to be prepared to actually go out into the community and talk to the parents too. I, when I, there was a, a really great documentary called Resilience that talks about this. And that's where I learned about the ACE for the first time. So no, I'm really excited about that project. I think that could be a game changer for our kiddos. The second project I'm interested in is public transportation because we've got to connect those kids to these facilities. Exactly. If you can trick them into going to the facility by saying like, hey, you can go play Fortnite and there's basketball and here's some soccer and there's art and you can read a book and it's like, uh-oh, I can do my homework too. Right. And maybe I'd have some mental health services. But sure. those those two things to me. they homework and we just throw it out <laughs> Maybe they do Fortnite the Fortnite one, one day. Maybe they do the reading assignment the next. I don't know. So no, those are, those yeah. are my things. And it, it, I started with that Paradise Lost example because, you know, all of the 80s and all of the 90s, that was what I heard from parents, teachers, and too many neighbors. They really thought that you were a problem kid and that if you watched or read or listened to certain stuff, that was the devil talking to you. And it's like, or, (laughs) but the, the, the kids in that Paradise Lost documentary, they sat in prison for eight, at least 18 years of their lives. I mean, this this is real world consequence. That's why that Columbine story means so much to me. Yeah. Um, And don't you think that these youth centers, that will play a big part? And like you mentioned, the ACE scores, Mm -hmm. that Oklahoma's number one and these um, horrible Mm -hmm. statistics. Um, How do you think those youth centers could... And and also how how they could reduce the the uh, the amount of suicides, mm-hmm. as Nikki mentioned, you know, in, in her ward, um, you know, how do you think that those youth centers can help prevent that? My hope, I mean, just from touring Boys and Girls Club and in the another liminal space was after I won and before the end of the school year. So I won in February alongside Joe Beth. Nikki had won a few months earlier in November. Um, from February through. May, I spoke with my students. Those mm-hmm. I had four college prep classes, and there's like 20 to 30 students each. And I said, what would need to be in these youth centers to get you to go? And, and they were the ones, to, well, I was one telling them Fortnite. <laughs> I was like, because I, I, I know these kids. Like, they're, they're, like they, they need an excuse. Sure. Um, but they were the ones telling me, the mental health mm-hmm. provider. Yeah. The kids were. These are 12, 13, 14-year-olds. Right. They were convinced. And I was like, well, can you elaborate on that? Like, well, some of us are bullied, and that can lead to the suicide stuff. Sure. And so maybe we're bullied in school, so then when we go to the youth center, there's someone there we can talk to mm-hmm. about that. Or maybe there's something going on at home, we can speak to that person. And the way Boys and Girls Club has everything sort of spread out, you know, they just opened a new teen center. This is the one on 36th and Western and Ward 2 where I serve. 
you know, they have, here's a room where you can be doing your resume work and here's some STEM education stuff and drones. Not, God, hope not those drones for them, but. It's <laughs> <laughs> a different conversation. <laughs> we shouldn't have those either, but. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's room, there's room where they can go do that, but then there's a room for arts and crafts. There's a room over here where they can play the drums and do uh, recording, sound mixing. Uh, here's a room where they can go play basketball. Uh, here's a room where they can be, you know, playing this video game. And I think having that space for all of those different things, the Fortnite's the trick them into the door. It re- I, know, I know that sounds... <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Whatever. Exactly. Uh, but getting them in that door to play basketball... And then they invite a friend or two or three or four mm-hmm. or five for a game. And while they're there, they start realizing that these other services are there. Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, we have so stigmatized, kind of going back to that Columbine Paradise Lost example, we have so stigmatized anybody who, it's gotten better, but anybody who seeks mental health service, you must be, quote, crazy. You must be sure. insane. There's right. something, quote, wrong with you. And it's like, yeah. or <laughs> it's your body <laughs> and <Right>. our brains. <laughs> we should probably be making sure that just as we work out sure. to tend to our muscles, we should be working out our mental space as well. And I think that because that stigma is so strong, especially in such a highly fundamentalist Christian state as Oklahoma is, where you can just pray all this away, people have told these kids, that they might not say, if you say, hey, there's a counselor there, they might not go for that. But if you say, hey, there's a Fortnite tournament over here, (laughs) and then right around the corner is that, I mean, just seeing those kids at Boys and Girls Club just hanging out. Like some kids would be playing Fortnite and then there would just be a couple of kiddos just laying like on a, 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 a like a beanbag, right? Good, good, <laughs> great. That's way better than out on any street with any game. And now that girl knows that if she, and specifically I'm remembering sure. her, she was just like going through her Snapchat. But if she knows that she's got something wrong at home or at the school, she knows that there's a counselor there at that um that youth center, I just think that's a game changer. Yeah, yeah. And it's not going to be overnight, and that's mm-hmm. the other part sure. of this that we're going to have to let everyone in our city know. We didn't get here overnight, not get out of it overnight. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I would just sort of insert sure. and speak to you. So one of the other things I do at the association is I'm trained as a QPR, which stands for Question, Persuade, Refer. Mm-hmm. It's a suicide prevention training that we do in the community. And in the presentation, you know, the – Two things that I always find to be really profound for people and that I remember when I went through the training found to be really profound is like it feels like there's some like magic key to like suicide prevention. And obviously that's not the case. It's like very complex. But then in some ways it is really simple because the things that I the 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 points of conversation that seem to always come up in the questions after the training um, are specifically that we talk about the lack, the loss of hope mm. um, being sort of this tipping point, as well as the lack of connection mm-hmm. and the opportunities, like you were saying, James, to go talk to someone or mm-hmm. feel comfortable talking to someone. In my mind, that's when I think about connection, I don't think just about like I have a relationship with someone. I think about like connection to opportunity or connection to some, you know, something like a youth center or job or um, a faith community mm-hmm. and having that ability to just you know, have that route to get there. Um, so I, I think about transit and sidewalks mm-hmm. and all that sort of, and even the parks piece of it is all kind of part of that, making a more connected community. So people feel less alone and mm-hmm. siloed in their own. Cause I think when I think about some areas of my ward, you know, I mean, it's, it, it sort of feels like an Island, like they're stuck between these 
you know, arterial streets. Their neighborhood is just sort of jammed between this, just like cars going 50, 60 miles an hour to get out to the suburbs um, from downtown and, you know, to get across the street to the park, across Penn Avenue or whatever, they have to go across four lanes of traffic, mm-hmm. go on 60 miles an hour with no good crosswalk. And, mm-hmm. um, and so they're walking their little you know, sibling and the stroller or whatever in the middle of the road. And um, and so just even those opportunities to feel more connected to the community and then have that opportunity for connecting to people who can give you that hope is sort of snuck some suicide prevention in a mess for. And I think, too, I'm, I have assist training and QPR training. Mm. And what I've been wanting to do, and I finally talked to one of the pastors, so we're going to do that, is... Um, we have, you know, we're very faith heavy in, in our African-American communities. So what I would like to implement is QPR for our pastors to at least know what that looks like for their, for their members. A lot of them may already have it, but just the opportunity for everyone that has not been trained or maybe designate someone from the church to be trained in, in QPR. And uh, as you were talking and thinking about the youth centers, Possibly are um, just one person from our youth centers that are all, that our parks mm-hmm. facilitate to have that type of training as well. Mm-hmm. Just so um, we're comfortable in knowing that if uh, there is a young person or anyone for that matter that needs uh, help and crying out for some assistance, that someone will be able to respond. 